because I think that Raksharaki is such a powerful creator of dialogue within the self and within the community, women for women. Whether you're a professional dancer or just started falling in love with ballet dance, welcome to the Ballet Dance Life podcast. Here, we are diving deep into all facets of ballet dance world that cannot be found in a workshop or an audience seat. Every week, you will find new, honest, thought-provoking, inspiring, and educational conversation with top leading professionals of our industry. I'm your host, Jana Komornitska, and I'm honored that you are part of our dance tribe. This episode is brought to you by the Yana Dance Club, online platform where you can get access to all my teaching materials at once. Hundreds of technique drills, multiple choreographies, themed intensives, full-length courses, everything you can think about. Whether 20 minutes or few hours for practice, you will find a program that will fit not only your schedule, but your mood as well. First seven days are free, so check it out at yanadanceclub.com, link in the show notes. Hello, dear dancers, welcome to a new episode of the Baladance Live podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have Tiffany Madeira, also known as Hanan, as our guest at the podcast. Since 2002, Miami-based artist Tiffany Madeira has become a figurehead in the dance world by recording traditional Egyptian Raksharki dance as a tool for empowerment and social justice. As a performer, professor, activist, museum professional, filmmaker and non-profit leader, she combines a highly aesthetic approach and academic scholarship to tackle the questions of our day. Tiffany holds a master's degree in Latin American and Caribbean studies from the Kimberly Green Latin American and Caribbean Center at Florida International University and a master's degree in performance studies from New York University Tisch School of the Arts, both with a focus on intercultural dance and film. Tiffany's cultural background, professional and academic experience make her an impact-driven and effective non-profit leader positioned to bring complex work into fruition through strategic partnership and collaborations. Her project have gotten support and awards across the world, including a 100,000 Night Arts Challenge Award with a full matching grant from the Ware Foundation among numerous state, country, municipal and national foundation awards. In our today's conversation, we're definitely going to talk a lot about her big project, such as Hanan Arts as a non-profit organization, and her skills and tips on writing grants and gathering money through fundraisers and sponsorships. And this is a topic that I don't think we really ever touched on the podcast. So this is something that, that will be maybe new for many of you to even think about. And for those of you who were trying to dig into this topic, you definitely will find some very cool, valuable tips. But also we talked about specific initiatives, uh, both her personal and from Hanan Arts, including Dancing My Mother's Body initiative and the 
reimagination of uh, body, body relationship, motherhood, identity, as well as Havan Habibi, which is one of her most famous projects, definitely. And we talked both about festival as an event and documentary and the fact that it takes place in Cuba. What does it take to organize events there? How does it impact local community? What impact local community has on artists who visit the event. The realities, celebrations and struggles of uh, belly dance communities all around the world and how different it is in different corners of our planet and different countries. And as overall thread through all our conversation, we talked again and again about healing powers of belly dance both on uh, individuals as well as on the whole communities. So this is one of the conversations that definitely will widen your horizons of understanding the full spectrum of things and events happening in our Baladins field. And uh, I really hope you will enjoy it. And don't forget to message me and our dear guest uh, if you like this conversation as well as sharing it with your uh, friends. And just before we dive into actual interview, I just want to do a quick reminder about announcement that I did last time about a free webinar that I'm putting together, which is slightly on different topic and more approaches individual goals and dreams of those of you who are thinking about starting performing solo at their own cities and countries. But as an individual and as a part of Baladin's community, even our individual journeys do influence the whole big picture. That's why I'm putting together a webinar to help you start your professional dance career. And either you want to do it as a side gig or full time, but on Sunday, January 30th at noon, Eastern Standard Time, so Toronto, New York time, we are going to meet online and I will share my experience on how to start performing solo and get paid. So all these first steps, like how to put together your portfolio, where to research, how to price your show, how to get your first uh, gigs, uh, all that will be discussed there and at the end you also will be able to ask me some questions if you have. The event is free but you just need to register. So go to yandansclub.com slash event and you will find a link for registration. I will also include it in the show notes so you don't need to memorize and type. You can just go to the notes to this episode and click the link directly to register. So once again, the event is free totally, but you just need to register and secure your spot so that I know how many people are planning to join us. And on this note, please welcome our dear guest, Tiffany Madera. Hello, dear Tiffany. Uh, Happy New Year. Welcome to 2022 and welcome to our podcast. I'm really happy to feature you today and to chat about dance and about your dance experience. (laughs) Thank you, Jana. I love being here with you and the opportunity to reach your listeners, audience, and uh, new dance friends around the world. Thank you for having me. Mm. 
we have really awesome community of uh, dance uh, members, dance listeners, and everyone like go through their own dance journey, uh, exploring things. But one thing we all have in common, it's our very first belly dance class or belly dance experience. <laughs> when we had that thought like, I want to learn or I want to dig deeper. How was for you this introduction to belly dance world? Well, my first belly dance class, that boom, that lightning strike is very clear in my mind. I had to have been uh, maybe 22, 23 years old. And I took the beginner's course at Mideastern Dance Exchange. And Tamalyn Galal, uh, you know, is the founder, the director and the teacher. And I remember she was teaching us the Egyptian basic. And it was a class of about 30 students. And she was, you know, across the room and our eyes met in this, you know, sea of dancers. And I remember feeling that lightning bolt, that empowerment, that solid place of um, power, fulfillment, focus that came from her, that came from the movement that came from the arms, that came from the posture. And I was so young and I was looking for something that made me feel safe and anchored in my body, in the world. And that moment really stood out to me. I said, wow, I want to feel this for the rest of my life. And, you know, that was at probably day one of this eight week course. And it's been, you know, my life, part of my life, my my path ever since that day, since that moment. But how did you get into the class? It was a part of like some bigger course or it was like your, you know, like your own choice to go and attend it? Well, I saw an ad for a belly dance course in the back of a magazine. Uh, it's called The New Times. And 20 years later, I was on the cover of that. And the, um, the title of the article was In the Belly of the Best. And, you know, it was a play on words. And, uh, you know, so I saw an ad. I saw an ad for an eight-week introductory belly dance course. And this magazine is like the, the local arts magazine. It's part of a national magazine, if you will, like the Village Voice, but for Miami. And, and so I took this course with a friend and... You know, and it was just something fun for us to do. But also, you know, in this period right after college where you're kind of looking for direction, you're looking for for how you're going to move forward in life. So, you know, it's all, you know, part of this, you know, timing. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how your first uh, introduction to Validance brought you this uh, idea of uh, Mm, connection to your body and uh, rethinking or re-realizing your approach or your relationship with your own body uh, because you now now you're doing a lot of initiatives uh, also forwarded on that and one of the initiative uh, uh, is called specifically dancing my mother's body which is about dance and connection to your body. So can you tell a little bit more about that? Yes, thank you for asking. So I love that initiative. Hanan Arts is, um, 
you know, a nonprofit arts organization. And we use dance and film as a vehicle for uh, the promotion of healing, self-knowledge, education, and community connection and building. And so it's really based on these principles that through the body, through embodiment, um, we not only heal ourselves, but heal the community. And so all of our initiatives, you know, have that as a thorough line. Dancing My Mother's Body comes out of this long life, you know, this lifelong preoccupation that I have with identity, with uh, gender identity, female identity, and the relationship between mother and daughter. So in graduate school, I, um, I fell in love with the writing of Helene Sissou. She's a French um, philosopher and writer, and she coined feminine writing, this idea of writing the body, you know, choreography, is writing the body. And so through that research, I started making connections with the story of my family. Uh, I'm first generation American born, Cuban American. And my parents left Cuba, you know, fleeing communism. And, you know, for those of us that, you know, look at the world through migration, through um, immigration, uh, through geopolitics, I think dancing my mother's body creates an opportunity to look at these larger questions, these larger ideas of bodies moving through the world. And so, you know, I started off as a belly dancer that did commercial belly dance uh, opportunities that were laid out, you know, back in those decades, right? So we're in a new world with technology. There's there's different things available now than, you know, the 90s, the early 90s. And for me, I'm an interdisciplinary artist, and belly dance is one of the main tools, languages, genres um, that I employ to do my work. And so Dancing My Mother's Body uh, uses different disciplines. So we use dance, we use, you know, we use raksharki, we use ballet dance. But we also use theater uh, techniques, we use writing, we look at philosophy, we read texts. And, you know, we, I've been doing this initiative through women's intensives, with weekends, with workshops um, that end in performances. And now I'm in production uh, with a new team of interdisciplinary artists, mostly coming from the world of theater. And, you know, we're creating a larger piece around dancing my mother's body. But it's taking Raksharki, it's taking the, the origins of Raksharki, it's taking the historical, philosophical, uh, religious community um, ideas around the dance and employing it into the service of of intellectual investigation that has to do around our bodies, particularly a, a woman-identified body and that relationship with the mother. There's so much there. You know, I mean, throughout literature, history, there's been so much exploration of this very uh, complex, rich uh, relationship. And so that's, that's what that initiative is. 
And I think that, you know, and I, I speak as a woman, I speak as a cisgender woman. And so you're going to hear me talking in these terms uh, with the understanding that there are many other identities that are included um, in the work, right? So all of the genders and identities are included in my work, uh, but I also you know, want to be transparent in my positionality as a cisgender woman when I talk about, you know, my body, my female body, and then the relationship with with the mother. Mm. It's also interesting how you put this connection between mother and daughter, uh, because uh, also as female, like we are kind of like both at the same time, always daughters and uh, often mothers and this transition it's interesting how it's connected to dance that through dance you kind of find a um, connection to your body regardless I guess of the stage of your life but it's still coming back to this idea of motherhood and not in the biological sense even but more in the uh, essence of the idea of motherhood and what it gives and how it influences like to physical being or to soul or to energy or to creation nature it's it's very interesting you got it that's exactly what the project is about so there's this literal biological motherhood you know but there's also the mothering of ideas there's the mothering of ourselves the mothering of our identity and our own image with our own choices, with our own agency. So the work is about that. It's about mothering the self, yourself, using dance as the pathway, as the bridge, the vehicle, and then using all of uh, these ideas that come um, with my program, with the initiative, but then every dancer, every participant you know, they are a universe unto themselves. So they bring this very rich tapestry of ideas that then comes into the body. And then, uh, you know, throughout the program, throughout the work, you know, this very incredible things are discovered. And it's about metaphor, right? So it's the metaphor of mothering, of motherhood. It's the metaphor of being a daughter, and then it's the metaphor of the creation of the self and in what image and with what um, influences our choices, conscious and unconscious, in becoming ourselves. Also speaking of uh, sort of identity and backgrounds, uh, you uh, mentioned that uh, your family is from Cuba, so and you had the experience of immigrating to, like, a family immigrating to another country. But you also have a lot of connection to Cuba, and uh, one of the, I guess, um, well-known, if not most known, project of yours is uh, Havana Habibi. Uh, which is both festival and documentary. And you have the whole like, story of how it started and why you kept developing it. So tell, can you please tell a little bit more? Because maybe not of all of our listeners know about this and the importance of this event. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So Havana Habibi, it's interesting in relation to dancing my mother's body. Because if you 
understand the timeline, Dancing My Mother's Body is actually the prequel to Havana Habibi. But Havana Habibi is the, the set of, of projects and products that comes before Dancing My Mother's Body, if you will. So uh, Havana Habibi is a feature-length documentary film. And, you know, it was shot over and developed over, you know, 15 years. So it's, it's a long form story that uh, was kind of guerrilla filmmaking, if, if you will. I went to Cuba on an artist exchange through another nonprofit organization here in Miami. And just through serendipity, I met a group of young ladies at the University of Havana that wanted to learn belly dancing. So I said, of course, you know, so at that time, you know, this was 20 years ago, you know, I was dancing full time in the way that you danced back then. So this was before social media, this before Facebook, um, this is, you know, before that, but I was dancing full time and I just started teaching them uh, technique classes in the living room on the front porch. And then we developed this beautiful relationship, this bond you know, I did fundraisers, I, I sold t-shirts, and then I, I went back to Cuba for two weeks. And then something really special just emerged from that trip. And then in a very grassroots way, I started, you know, having little fundraisers and then going back. And then about a year or more into that process, I said, I want to start filming. So the very, very, very beginning uh, was not films. It's not part of the documentary, but the intimacy, the bond, the trust that you see in the documentary is a result of that time um, off camera and um, those early seeds. And then, you know, in mentoring the women in Cuba, uh, they you know, they formed a dance company, they formed a school, and I became a mentor figure. And so, you know, it was about honoring and supporting their ideas, their, their goals, you know, what they wanted for themselves. And then the festival emerged out of, you know, those conversations. So we had three. And then certainly, um, you know, the pandemic has been very, very hard for all of us around the world, but um, I think especially hard for the people of Cuba. And even before uh, 2019, uh, there were some, uh, some extra hardships that happened on the island um, due to, uh, you know, due to, you know, the things that happened, that happened in Cuba. And so that affected the 2019 festival uh, so, you know, Havana Habibi, in addition to being a full length, um, you know, documentary that exists, there's also been smaller workshops that, you know, haven't been filmed that are not part of the film or even the festival of colleagues, friends of mine uh, that have traveled to Cuba and that have, you know, created artist exchanges with Cuban Soho, which is the name of the group and the school uh, that was formed throughout this uh, process. 
And so there's many ways, kind of public and not public, that uh, the belly dance community here, I've been able to galvanize support for their, um, their artistic work in Cuba. And of course, this is a very complicated, um, very difficult project to manage in the um, political arena, especially myself being a Miami-born American, Cuban-American person. And, um, you know, they're, they're a communist country and I am not a communist um, or a socialist. Uh, and I am an artist and I'm a humanitarian and I am a Cuban-American in the diaspora. And I strongly, deeply, lovingly believe um, in art and dance and in our dance, in Raksharki, because I think that Raksharki... Um, is such a powerful creator of dialogue within the self and within the community, women for women. And, um, you know, as a Cuban American, as a Cuban in the diaspora, I so very deeply love the people of Cuba around the world. And I so deeply love this dance. And so Havana Habibi has been this incredible privilege to see the power of this dance, to see what happens when women come together to have this conversation with themselves and with each other. And, you know, the film, the film really tells the story. It's a powerful film that has been seen around the world in festivals and, and different screenings. And the way it impacts the audience never ceases to amaze me, never ceases to move me. Um, when people around the world can collapse all of their judgment, all of their fears around the geopolitics of the story and be with the women be with the dance, see what the dance can do, see what women can do when they are together and given, um, you know, tools and language for healing, for development, for dialogue, for creating community. So I'm very proud of Havana Habibi. It's, it's not, um, you know, it's not the, e the easiest path. Um, it's definitely the path less traveled, but it has bore so much fruit around the world and with my, um, you know, the dance community in Cuba to see what they've created for themselves with this dance and uh, just the love and support that they get around the world um, through the project and through the festival. You know, it's extremely rewarding and it's very beautiful because they made it their own. And I think that we know, as we've seen in, in the Raksharki community around the world, dance is a living, breathing um, a genre. So it's supposed to interact with the land that it touches. And it should interact with the historical moment. And, you know, Cuba is in a historical moment with their, um, with their culture, with their form of government and it's to it's to respect 
you know, if we look at intersectional feminism and um, the feminisms around the world, it's about respecting who each of us are and um, where we are. You mentioned that when you start teaching in Cuba and you were coming back uh, again and again, something special emerged. That's the phrase you used. Uh, can you dig a little bit deeper and unpack it? Because maybe not forever. Like, what was that special and specifically about uh, belly dance in Cuba? Because this is a quite a complex uh, topic and question and. I'm sure not everyone may have full understanding of the importance of that. And also on this note, like personally for you, what you put in those words, like something special emerged, what sparked you to keep doing it? And, and, and it's a great question because it is, it's really complicated and, and it can get lost. What makes it complicated can get lost. So, you know, one of your first questions was, you know, how did you start? And I, I mentioned this moment where I saw, you know, my first teacher and mentor, um, I saw that, that empowerment embodiment come through her eyes and her arms. And I was coming out of uh, a very difficult experience in my youth. And uh, I was healing through a difficult, traumatic, violent experience. And um, belly dance reopened myself to myself. So I think part of my commitment to the work, why I love it so much, is that I lived um, firsthand what belly dance can do to a wounded, um, trauma-filled individual and how it can open um, opportunities, not just for healing, but for recreating the self, for reloving the self, for knowing the self, for building, world-making. And so that's how I came into belly dancing. And, and because of that, and, and I talk about this in the film, in Havana Habibi, because of that, life has a grid that I look through in all of my aesthetic, artistic, life experiences. And then with Cuba, we have to understand that they are currently living under um, authoritarian um, communism. And, you know, there's a lot of restrictions in the lives of the people of Cuba. And uh, so people in that system don't have the choices available to them that um, people in other parts of the world have. And so that becomes a macro structure. But then you take someone like myself that, that lives in democracy and has many opportunities and many privileges. And because of the um, physical violence or emotional trauma that I experienced as an experience, you know, not a, a structure that I live under constantly, I saw what belly dance did for me. So then you apply and, and, and you bridge this connection 
Um, so I had a, a, a micro experience in Cuba. There's a macro experience. And then you introduce belly dance that because of the movements, because there are these micro movements of muscles, of mastery that has to do, mastery in our art form is about improvisation. It's about trusting your choices. It's about having technique, but also mixing the technique with your spirit, with your personality, with extending your ego into this higher state where you can bring incredible love and pleasure and energy to an audience. So all of that trajectory that comes with mastery of the art form, you know, you place that into this context of individuals living in a society with very um, strict rules of movement, physical movement, and, um, and day-to-day choices, which are not what we're accustomed to. And you introduce a dance form that takes you so deeply into a voyage of self-freedom, liberation, love, uh, creativity, self-mastery, joy, pleasure. I mean, all the neuroscience of dance, what dance does to your neuropathways, to your brain for healing, for memory. I mean, we, we have the science for that, but then we also have... Um, the lived experience of all of us dancers around the world and what this really beautiful dance did for our internal world. And so you take that into a place, um, you know, like Cuba that is just incredibly rich in culture, in, in music and in architecture, in literature, in fine art, um, in science and, um, but people living with real scarcity, with real scarcity of basic needs. And you introduce a dance that, um, that has such freedom of the mind. It's a very powerful, uh, uh, I don't want to say gift, because I think we all receive a gift. Anywhere in the world, all of us that have the dance have a gift. But I think it's an incredible uh, collaboration between the dance and the dancer. And it has a very specific meaning in Cuba. We cannot separate the geopolitical context of the restricted um, sense of movement that people have you know, in that society, but you juxtapose it with the freedom, the beauty, the power of the dance. And I think you see that in Havana Habibi. And I think the people around the world that um, have been drawn to the project and, and support the project and want to continue, they understand that it's not just, um, you know, this individual enterprise of being the most beautiful and winning the most stuff. Havana Habibi takes you to this very analog world, to this world before um, digital comparison where, you know, we're falling back in love with the possibility of life and the freedom that's possible in life. 
And I think that's part of um, what is powerful about the project. And, you know, and it just, there's so many obstacles involved in the work, but that's also part of the beauty of it because the women in Cuba, like the people of Cuba around the world, um, are extremely brilliant and resilient and talented. And so you see that in the continuation of, of how they can, you know, create their dances and they keep going. Even now, they're, they're going strong now. What was the most challenging obstacle or like a challenge in organizing physical ballet dance event in Cuba that uh, you managed to overcome? Well, there's so many, and and so you have to think about it as a partnership, you know. So there's, you know, in Cuba, nobody owns anything. So it's not like you go to a place that you rent and you sign a contract and you pay a deposit and you know that the event is going to happen because you did those steps like we do everywhere else in the world. Um, so that doesn't exist in Cuba. There, um, So... Part of what's so difficult, and even people close to me, even people that are in my inner circle don't realize that it's it's always moving under your feet. Like even the festivals that did happen, that people showed up and had a festival, things were moving and changing in, in very big ways, not small ways, like very, very big ways. And... Um, you know, in, in the end, because there's people from Europe and, and other parts of the world that have things going on in Cuba, but, you know, we, we have an embargo, right? And I am American. So, and most people don't even understand what the embargo is. So that's, that's a real thing. That's a real thing. So, so part of what's important to understand about the festival is that, you know, my role is to support the dreams of the Cuban dance company of Cuban Soho and to help uh, bring to life their vision. And, and so they have relationships within uh, the cultural world of Cuba. They, you know, they are, you know, members of that community. And, um, and I, you know, my job is to support what they want, but the reality is, is that I am American, a North American, as they say there. And, you know, I have to be very careful. I'm a guest. I'm a guest in the country. And, um, you know, so it's about respecting uh, their wishes. And, and it changes. So, again, you know, people don't understand that um, – it's not one person. It's a very, very vertical system where you never get one answer. It's all, you have to go back and get another. You have to go back and back and back and back and back. And things aren't clear. So the way we work, and again, um, I'm born and raised in the United States. So things here are a certain way. It's clear. It's in writing. You know you own something, you have a contract, like that does not exist there. And so, you know, even people close to me didn't understand certain decisions um, that were being made because I have to respect um, 
I have to do everything I can to protect um, the women, you know, and to respect their rules and to to navigate this kind of invisible, um, there's like this invisible way of, of things getting done. And I'm a guest and I'm very clear that I'm a guest. And so Americans often, you know, and, and I do this here, I, you know, I have a make it happen attitude, you know, like I have a make it happen. I'm a producer. I produce things like the show must go on and I know how to get things done um, here in my in my world. Um, it's a different country with a different system. And there's rules that um, maybe the people there don't always understand because they change and then certainly someone from the outside. So, you know, it takes a lot of, it takes a special person to understand that complexity and to wholeheartedly support that it's not going to look or feel the way you think other things should look or feel, you know? So a festival uh, in New York city or LA or Argentina you know, or Paris, like there's a lot of expectations of what that's going to look or feel like. And Cuba is its own thing. And I think part of my educational mission as, you know, a humanitarian arts nonprofit organization, you know, I'm an educator. So my, my priority is the educational experience for people to, to know and love Cuba, the people of Cuba and to put it in the right context. And that's not for everyone. But I guess also this uh, uh, amount of obstacles and completely different relationship between people and between making things happen in Cuba, they also strengthen a lot the sense of community. And it's a completely different vibe than you come to, I don't know, a festival in, let's say, New York. It, it feels sometimes like, uh, I mean, of course, we do have community, we feel it, but it's still like, it's kind of like almost a commercial exchange. Like, okay, I paid to be here. Here, here are my friends, which is great, but I came to study, take workshops. There in Cuba, I kind of have a feeling that because so many women probably who come to festival this is my guess, but it's just like a, a, a guess on most, many of them also participate somehow in making event actually happen <laughs> and showing up and with all those different relationships, like, oh, you cannot just rent a studio. It's a different thing. So it's probably a completely different sense of community there, even in the festival, even when you come as an outside, like you just as a like guest participant from other country, maybe visiting like Cuba or like not part of like local community, but it still probably feels very different. It's very different. It's not commercial and it's really about trust. And um, I, I spent a lot of years earning the trust of the people um, that I come into contact with from the personal human level of being in people's homes and uh, being trusted as a, you know, a Cuban of the diaspora, but also, you know, these are art institutions that are part of, of the, um, you know, the structure of their society. 
and also earning the trust of those professionals. And um, a lot of, I've heard that a lot of people say, oh, I'm, I'm going to go to Cuba. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to do my own thing. It's like, it's, it's popped up over the years. And I, I don't see that anyone has done it because to earn the trust of the community, first of all, as a documentary filmmaker, that's the first thing. And in doing intercultural work, in doing this type of um, feminist work, it, it really is a very specific um, heart um, and it's a very specific skill set. And so my number one priority is for the people of Cuba and the international people that participate. Um, you know, some people didn't like my application process. Like some people were, were irritated that there's an application, that you have to answer questions. But it's not a commercial... Application um, for what? For the festival. For ah. the festival. So, you know, it's not like you go a link and, and you pay and you show up. Um, you get selected. You get selected. And, and it's for the reasons that you just mentioned. You know, the Cuban dancers need top priority, top access. Um, the international community is there to provide um, a dialogue, you know, with the Cuban community. So it's not like, you know, when you go to the big festivals and you go a gazillion hours early so you can be in the front row and you put your bottle of water and like you're spazzing out about what you want. Like the spirit of this festival is um, together we're going to create an opportunity and we're going to um, uplift the Cuban dancers in the international space of Raksharki. And so that's the number one priority. And all of my decisions are based on that. And so, you know, I think the spirit that you feel, one, there's, I have training, you know, so I'm a trained educator and in nonprofit and social justice work. And, and that's like a real training. Like I didn't show up and say, I'm doing all this stuff. I've been doing it, but the spirit of the work the way we use language, um, the way we, we show up in the room has a very, very particular criteria. And it's all based on, um, you know, on centering the, the dance for the Cuban dancers. Mm. Well, that's interesting. And it's definitely one of those unique, uh, dance projects around the world that uh, I don't think it's it's uh, like have any analogy like anywhere else uh, it's definitely unique in itself and uh, it's one of those uh, literally ways of uh, I don't know bringing dancers liberation and community builder <laughs> yeah. at the same time yeah. You several times mentioned about your also non-profit organization. And I would like to ask you, what was the initial reason why you decided to go non-profit? And did it change over years or it's still the same 
like initial reason it's still the mission of your nonprofit organization? Well, it's it's a beautiful history which is which is so um, I love to tell because so Mid Eastern Dance Exchange um, historically since 1990 was founded by Tamlin Delal and it was a for-profit dance academy and and she created a nonprofit and then uh, I wrote some of the first grants to uh, for Mid-Eastern, this is in, in the 90s, to uh, raise money for the large-scale theatrical belly dance shows that Tamil and Dalal produced in Miami Beach. And then around 2008, she left Miami and she split the organization. So she gave the physical dance school to Bojenka and she gave the nonprofit 501c3, which is the legal um, tax structure to me. And, you know, so Bojenka and I came up together and then we're part of this like beautiful historical moment in Miami. And then, so then over the years, I restructured what was Mid-Eastern Dance Exchange. I had the, um, the legal structure and then we, we formed Hanan Arts and then Hanan Arts, uh, very, you know, the spirit of Mideastern and, and part of where I have these roots in community came from Mideastern, you know, because we danced a lot of charity work, fundraising work. Um, so that dance school founded by, by Tamalin was very much a part of the Miami Beach community. And so, you know, it was is very artistic and all kinds of artists from other disciplines, you know, were at the school and there were many festivals and outdoor concerts. I mean, it was really just an incredible time in Miami beach, um, artistic history that we were a part of. And then when I took it over, especially in the last 10 years, my focus really came into the intersection of social justice and community art, um, dance and film. So, you know, now we have a very specific vision. We have new initiatives actually that of course were uh, deeply affected by the pandemic. So we've had to kind of break up the initiatives in smaller chunks, but we have new initiatives and all of these initiatives, you know, like Havana Habibi, are at the intersection of social justice, community, and very high-level aesthetic quality. And where does your interest in film comes from? Because a lot of your projects, they're a combination of documentation, like documentaries about dance or creative, like filming of dance. So where does it come from? I love, I mean, I've always, always, always loved film and you know, something that most people don't know is my background, like way, way, way back is, is theater, is acting, is acting and comedy. And um, so I've always just loved, you know, theater and acting and film and studying film and, you know, screen dance or dance for camera is its own genre. It's changing now, right? So the pandemic created... Um, a lot of 
you know, shifting dancers into putting their work on film and not necessarily from a film genre aesthetic perspective, right? So there's, you know, you see a lot of dancers just like with their phone on a tripod and they're dancing in front of it. So that's not dance film. That's not dance for camera. That's something else. Um, But documentary film is something that I've just always loved. One, as an educator, you're also a lifelong learner and you just learn so much from documentary. I mean, it just takes you into a world. Making Havana Habibi, um, even with all the obstacles and, and the things that I talk about, was just so incredibly fun. I mean, it was so cool, like the process of making the film. And that film has, you know, I, I could do a whole hour just talking about the film, you know, which is different than the project or the dance or the work. Um, so I've always just had a very film brain in how I look at things, even how I look at dance. And, you know, certainly when I was at NYU, I was in performance studies. I wasn't in film studies. Um, but there's a lot of training that I've had about how to look and how to tell a story and how to frame a story. And I think that has a lot to do with my love for, for film. And then some of our new initiatives moving forward, there's a lot of more films that we're in pre-production right now that, you know, I wouldn't say I'm a patient person, but, um, you know, the pandemic forces us to build these skills around patience um, that are happening. And so I think film is an incredible you know, medium, because it takes your idea further. It takes it farther out into the world. It can reach more people. And um, that is one of the gifts of the pandemic. We're connecting more globally, um, digitally. And, you know, just the body is so incredible. Like what the body can do is just so incredible. And to tell the stories about our bodies, you know, through film and, and beautiful aesthetic forms is, is such a contribution to the world, to connection, to how we connect, how we learn about each other, and, um, you know, how to manifest ideas, which is really what it's about. And in terms of manifesting ideas, you also managed to... Um, support all those ideas and projects with pretty many like fundraisings, uh, uh, grants. How is uh, difficult or easy this process? Or maybe I should put, I guess, uh, opposite. Like, what do you think is the key point that allows you to make this work successful in terms of fundraising and receiving grants to make it actually happen in the world? So to connect back to um, one of your recent questions about the nonprofit, so part of the best thing about having a nonprofit is uh, you become eligible to receive grants. And you can also receive grants if you're not a nonprofit by using a fiscal agent, and then you pay a nonprofit um, a fee, right? It's a percentage, and then they apply. So that's just something that not everybody knows. And so I've become very good at uh, fundraising. It's actually something I really enjoy doing. Uh, so writing grants is a skill. It's a language. It's a way of 
communicating the idea uh, very clearly, very succinctly. And what funders want to know is that you know what you're trying to do and that you have the ability to do it. And so I've written many grants from, from tiny grants, uh, government grants, local to major, major um, foundation grants, you know, from $2,000 to $350,000. And um, so it's, it's definitely something I'm, I'm very proud of, uh, but it's a skill set that you, you should learn, you should cultivate, you should work with someone because you need funding to bring the work into excellence. And part of, you know, my path, so this is my path, okay? I was never interested in the festivals for a couple of different reasons. I don't like um, crowded places and I don't like loud places. So festivals aren't really for me. And, um, I don't go to concerts, you know, but I go to the theater, right? So for me, the space that makes me feel um, safe, happy, elated, joyful is the theater. And so how do you get your work into the theater? Well, quite honestly, it takes a lot of money and it takes a lot of collaboration at um, a high aesthetic level. So the work that I'm interested in, in doing I had to grow into the aesthetic level to reach the goals, right? So I didn't just say, oh, I want to do this. I said, I want to be there. What does it take to be there? So there is more training. There is more level I had to reach. Uh, there was fundraising that needed to happen. So it's not something that happened in my 20s like it happened now so there was just a lot of um, work that I had to do to reach those goals and so you know I think as a belly dancer there's so many different paths that you can take if you look at my career and um, and who I am in this community I work with the top cultural arts institutions in Miami, in live performance, um, in stage, in literature, in film. So my work is in those spaces. And so the question is, well, what does it take to be in those spaces? There's, there's, there's an aesthetic, uh, I'd say an aesthetic, uh, artistic quality that needs to be met. And then you have to fund those projects and you fund them through collaborations with um, other institutions and organizations. And then you have to write grants. Um, but part of that path is to work from an aesthetic place that you can really, really clearly articulate because getting a grant is about really clearly articulating the idea and its value, right? Its value to the genre, to the, to the art um, form, and that you have what it takes to make it happen. And so all of those things are a specific path, which is different than a community performance or other types of performances. So it's just about being clear 
what is your goal? What is your path? What do you want? And what does it take to get there? And you mentioned that writing a grant is, uh, is skills. It's like skills that you need to develop. How is that process of developing those skills for you? Like, did you have the stage or it was like right from the beginning, just like, you know, like naturally came out and right from the beginning, you start getting like grants and fundraisings, or did you have that period that you kind of had to invest in order to improve those skills and brought them, bring them to the level that they actually enable you to, to get the grants and fundraisings? Well, it's, um, it's both. So I think naturally I had an aptitude for writing, but I was doing different types of writing, right? So I've, I've, I'm a published arts writer where I was doing, um, I was like a dance critic, an arts critic. That's a different type of writing. But one of the biggest takeaways that I had in grad school, which I, I want everyone to know is I had one professor uh, stand in front of the class and he just screamed. I mean, he literally said it three times. His face was bright red. Um, he said, answer. And then he had an expletive question. So answer the GD question, answer the GD question. And um, he, he was just being very animated, but the whole point of grants is to answer the question and like really answer the question. Like that's basically what it boils down to. And, um, you know, if you've been on a panel that reviews other people's grants, or you've written your own grants, um, or you even have a conversation like the one you and I are having, it's about answering the question. And that is what grants are. The magic of grants is answering the question and letting the reader know in a very clear way, what is your idea? How is it going to look? Um, why is it important? Who is it going to impact? Why does it need to happen right now? Why are you the person to bring this idea into the world? How are you going to bring it into the world? What are your resources? Because you know, this grant might be for $5,000, but it might take $30,000 to get the project done. So how are you going to, um, you know, raise the rest of the money? And there's, you know, there's sweat equity. There is in-kind. There's people. You know, you always, if you want to create a big project, you start with what you know and who you know. And start with people that believe in you and trust in you and will give you that time because there's nothing more precious or valuable than time. Um, and then, but then you do need some cold, hard cash to get um, certain things done. So I had mentors. Um, I had mentors, so I applied for grants. You know, you, you want to start with your local community, like city, city grants. Um, they usually tell you exactly what they want. Sometimes they give you feedback. Most grants don't give you feedback. Um, but I think the best practice in anything is ask people that have been successful at it to help you. You know, most people will give you a little bit of time. But, you know, the budgets, you have to really know what things are going to cost. And... Um, so I started small, you know, I started with $2,000 grants and then I got um, some other 
grants at different levels or was a finalist for grants, you know, you don't get every grant you apply for. So just know that from the beginning. Um, but work with people that are good at it, that are better at you, and that can give you feedback and start local. And one last thing I'll say is um, get sponsorships. You know, get sponsorships, get people that have businesses that can write you a check. You know, there's so many ways to fund a project. You have to think outside of the box and you have to start with the people around you that like you and believe in you. Because I've had donations early, early on in Havana Habibi when I was just trying to, you know, get there to do the workshops. And, you know, I needed to raise $3,000 so that I could, you know, get there. And, you know, I asked for sponsorships. I, I wrote proposals. I, um, you know, I have a non-for-profit. So when you have a non-for-profit, people can make a donation and they get it off their taxes. Like that's kind of the way it goes. So if you don't have your own non-for-profit work for another one, get a sponsorship. They'll get their tax donation. But it's about how you show up for the ask. And I've had people from many different backgrounds, I mean, really different backgrounds, different cultures, that have written me checks and said, Tiffany, um, I, I don't care about belly dancing and I don't care about Cuba, and, um, but you're so passionate. I believe in you. So I'm funding you, I'm funding your dream. And, um, and to me, that's one of the most important things I've learned in fundraising. And now people have GoFundMes for everything, but I would use it very strategically, very strategically. Don't burn the trust of the people. You know, GoFundMe is very easy. It, it takes all of this, um, magic out of it you know you just but even then you know people have to be compelled to give uh you know be very strategic with with what you're doing because you know some things are like poignant and then other things are more whimsical and if you take up too much gofundme space with you know things that are whimsical you may lose um, not lose, but maybe not earn the trust of the public. Yeah, that's so true. Well, so many cool uh, tips of advice, and uh, I don't think we really ever digged deeper into the topic of like grants and sponsorship and fundraising. So thank you for covering. I kind of feel it can be the whole like separate uh, topic of like another episode another interview and i will be very very happy to do it again in the future but i also want to be mindful and respectful of your time today too uh so on this note i also uh before we actually summarize i cannot skip but ask you about your current uh, new initiatives and projects because you mentioned that especially like this pandemic situation really affected uh, uh, your activities and Hanan Arts activities. So can you share uh, like whatever you feel like sharing about what's currently going on and, or what's uh, coming up uh, soon in the future? Yes, I am very excited. Um, we have, okay, so right now we're in pre-production of a film that is calling me. There's dance in it, but the main protagonist is not a dancer. 
And then there's two live stage shows that we are in like pre-production fundraising for, um, that's for 23 and 24. So we're one and two years out. We're one and two years out. And so part of my creative process is I never talk about what I'm cooking. I just announce the delicious dish um, that is for you. Um, but, you know, please, if you join our newsletter at hananarts.org, uh, periodically we, we share our updates. Um, one of our new initiatives actually will um, provide opportunities for dancers and filmmakers to work with us. And so we're very excited about that. We have some fantastic philanthropy partners um, and funders that are, you know, working with us on that journey. And we're excited to um, create some opportunities for dancers uh, based on some themes and some other projects. And so, you know, that has, you know, we were supposed to launch that during the pandemic, but, um, you know, the obstacles of the pandemic and also just holding on to the, the vision of it and, you know, me dancing. So I like to perform, you know, it's usually once a year in something I produce or something that I feel has, um, you know, a thematic or aesthetic idea that I want to be a part of. So I'm working on, on, you know, the live stage performances include include me dancing, which also is very pleasurable. And I perform in the baladi style. And then I, I like to bring in other storytellers with me on stage. And um, so I do, we have the team, we have the good three major things on the table right now that are all in pre-production. And uh, there's some new people that I'll um, be working with that come from theater or contemporary dance that I'm very, very excited about. And then um, Shimmy Shift Pivot, which is one of the initiatives that um, was an online webinar series uh, that is going to have some other manifestations with uh, in-person workshops in the community and um, bringing artists to Miami as part of that. So, you know, we needed a break certainly over the holidays and uh, with the new um, surge with the um, pandemic, you know, we're all just taking a breather now and but I think the new year has had some, some nice new energy for us. So I would just love that people check out the website, hananarts.org, and join the newsletter. Uh, you know, we're on Instagram. And we have a great community. Uh, and then, you know, we'll see what in-person things can start bringing us back together in that really, you know, that global way that we like to be with people and you know, maybe deeper, more intimate projects where we can be together. And is there any place that uh, where people can see your documentaries? 
Well, okay, so I love that question. So Ya Habibi, the story of the song, which is the documentary that we, um, we did in 2020, is going in the festival circuit. In the sh- so it's a short film, and the festival circuit is its own thing. It kind of travels for a period of time. And then after it travels in that period of time, we uh, decide, you know, where to put it and where to have it live. Havana Habibi, even though it's an older film, still uh, travels in um, university screenings and festivals. It's in a different category. So not as a new film, but special topics. And I travel with it and show it. So anyone that wants to see Havana Habibi typically um, contacts uh, the company, contacts us for a screening, their own screening, and then we go through that process. So I still, I mean, not with pandemic, but normally I would travel with the films because um, the educational academic circuit. So they're not online where you can kind of click and, and see it, but you can reach out to us because this does happen a lot. So we have professors all over the world that want to show the film in their classes and they reach out to us and it's kind of an educational exchange that we do. And then, uh, but stay tuned because we do want to have Havana Habibi online and we're working on that now. Uh, We were just waiting for a couple of festivals to pass. But Havana Habibi, we really want people to see it. And I think now is the time. So I guess it's perfect time to join your newsletter and subscribe to social media to stay tuned for like a new announcement about films, about new projects, about new initiatives and about all the things that uh, uh, next upcoming years will bring us. And uh, let's see in which direction we will pivot <laughs> next time. Exactly, because, you know, it's just this new place that we're in that we have to be open to, like, you know, we just have to be open to, you know, it's not what exactly we thought it was going to look like, but it's still happening in its own way. And so I'm doing my best to stay flexible um, with that, too. But, yeah, join, join us with the newsletter. That's the best place to really know. And to summarize our conversation, I have a traditional question, which I ask at the very end of every single interview, regardless of what we talked. The question is personal, so get ready. But we okay. uh, we briefly talked about it already. So anyway, it's just a nice way to summarize. And the question is, what makes you fall in love with belly dance, with rock sharky? again and again so you keep doing it for so many years why do i stay in love with raksharki raksharki is a friend that is always ready to receive you even if you've turned your back even if you've been away even if you checked out Raksharki is always a friend that is ready to receive you, no matter what season you are in your life, no matter what changes has occurred in your mind, your body, your spirit. Raksharki is just 
this loving companion that is ready to curve with you, to move with you, to flow with you. And I think, you know, I fell so in love with Arakshadaki because um, I felt that. I felt a reciprocation of affection. I felt this reciprocity of interest. I felt it was interested in me just like I was interested in it. And I think part of my mission in my work is Raksharki is so much more. You know, it's it's more, it's more. Raksharki is this companion that loves us and, and just wants the best for us. And don't lock it up in a little cage of of ego, of competition, of this weird stuff that goes on. Like, don't, that, don't, no. Like, Raksharki loves us and wants something else for us. And so that's, I keep my eyes on that prize. And so I, I feel like I reincarnated so many times just in this one life. And Raksharki has always been there to love me. And I just love it back. That's it for today, guys. But before you go away, don't forget to screenshot this episode and share it with your friends. And if you post it on social media, please tag me and our guest because we love seeing who is listening to the podcast. Thanks for being with us and I'll see you next week. Same time, same place.